Have you ever read the book of Jaws? I haven't read the book, no. Don't. Yeah. So So that's the exception of the rule, huh? Welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show, an entertaining podcast with two best-selling authors connecting readers with an eclectic array of distinguished guests through lively conversation and interviews. Hosted by mystery suspense and thriller writers, Douglas Pratt and Nicholas Harvey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show. How is everyone doing today? I'm Douglas Pratt. This is my favorite Brit, Nicholas Harvey, and we're here to talk to you guys this week. How are you doing, Nicholas? I'm good. Good to hear I'm your favorite Brit. Of course, I think you know two Brits, don't you? And that's about it. Maybe two or three. I don't know. Yeah, Twiggy, <laughs> Twiggy doesn't answer my phone calls anymore, so no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, I'm good. Did a little bit of traveling lately. Did I tell you I finished your book, Gator Alley? Oh, yeah, no. I finished reading Gator Alley, which everyone can find uh, online from Amazon. And it was awesome. I know we're friends, so we're supposed to say this sort of thing about each other's books and what have you, but it was really good. I got sucked in. The opening is uh, the first chapter just grabs you. And uh, from about the midpoint on, there's action all the way through, but midpoint on to the end, it's just this fantastic escalating uh, action. So I was... uh, binge reading on the uh, on the plane it was fantastic oh so, that's awesome well thank you very much so what have you been doing well it's been kind of been writing a lot lately um got a chance to play a new game this last week with some friends uh they invited us over to their house to play a game called mind the gap yeah like the english uh getting on the underground yeah except nothing like that at all so <laughs> it's they use the name <laughs> that was it but uh it's it's actually it's a generational gap so if the game is it's kind of like trivial pursuit i guess you could say but it's you have four sections. You have the boomers, the Gen X, the millennials, and Gen Z. And you have questions from each one, and you've got to work your way around the board. So while I was, like, rocking out Gen X, like, I knew all those answers right off. But when I got the boomers and they started asking some just crazy-ass questions, I was like, ah, totally clueless. But a lot of fun. Like, it's really neat. It's, it's kind of the kind of thing you want to play with uh, – different generations. We were mostly Gen Xers playing at the time, but it was still fun. We got a chance to learn a lot of things we didn't know, which is pretty much any music after 1999 for me. So, Yep. I can hang there into the 2000s. My wife and I have talked about that a lot, actually. It's like the music that you end up uh, liking. There's definitely a window of time in your life where you kind of capture that music that's of influence to you. And then you just sort of stop paying attention or caring that much afterwards i think yeah well that and a lot of it sucks (laughs) (laughs) yeah but every generation says the same thing right (laughs) i mean if you hadn't lived through the 80s you'd say most of that sucks but hell i'll hairband the hell out of it right Uh, yeah maybe yeah i guess so but i I don't know it's it's still i'd listen to menudo before i listened to like you know 98 degrees (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the questions i didn't get right so now i'm like all right that's why. That's remember. how I knew so, the name. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> I do feel like the '90s and into the early 2000s, especially the maybe grunge on. There's some fantastic music oh, during amazing. that period yeah. of time. I mean, yeah, I think somewhere between '84 to '96 is probably about the best chunk of music out there. I mean, there's some great stuff before and after. 
So moving into the body of the show here, our show is titled this week, Shifting Gears, and it's apropos because our guest is a race car driver by the name of James Hinchcliffe, who shifted gears from being a professional IndyCar driver into working in the commentating booth. So we'll be chatting with him in a bit. Very entertaining fellow that I've been fortunate to know for a few years. And uh, of course, it ties in because we're, we're both what I call a secondhand human. A <laughs> secondhand human. I love that that's the, the phrase we've become is secondhand human. So <laughs> that feels right. I feel a bit secondhand. So it's, uh, I think it's perfect. All right. So we have uh, some audience questions. I'll do the first one here. And this is Sherry Lee Shul, if I'm pronouncing it right, from Panama. Aren't we international? Where do all your ideas come from? And the reason that we picked this question out of the hat was because of the uh, touching on uh, prior lives sort of thing, because I think that plays into it, don't you think? Oh, I think so. I mean, absolutely so. I think a lot of the ideas I have kind of, they start off, uh, you know, definitely from from past experience, but also things that I think about or seen in that make me go, hey, can that work as a story? So, of course, some of my ideas for stories have been just, paper thin and i've written a whole book about them so it's <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy how about you i think um the ideas come from all over i mean my gosh it generally it's pulling two things together that seem like they would work together in some way shape or form right so rather than just you know taking something from the news and going oh i'm gonna write about that it's it maybe a place that comes up in the news or in a, a some kind of event and then tied it in with something else so I think you pull from all those memories and stories you have from back in the past. I find that characters, you know, you often get asked about where do you get your characters from? I think that is really a melting pot of a lifetime of meeting people and being around people. And again, it's not, you don't base it on just one person. It's a mixture, right? Well, we've got another question here and oh, we're still international. This is from uh, Rosemary Kinney who's over in your stomping grounds in the UK. And uh, she says, as we asked, did either of you have any journalistic or similar backgrounds before becoming an author? How about you, sir? No. Not at all. <laughs> well, as we're going to discuss today, you were, yeah, you were too busy racing around. To- yeah. Yeah. I was, I was not a scholarly young man. I think like many kids, I was uh, great through middle school. Um, and then became an utter shit. (laughs) Pretty much. I derailed pretty good when I got into what we call secondary school, which is what you call high school. And, uh, I couldn't wait to leave. I was a terrible student. I was in trouble quite a bit. And I went to, a. I was very lucky to go to a really good school. And by some form of osmosis, I got, uh, what I think is a reasonable education. They, they tried, I, I resisted heavily. So no, I don't have any, uh, I'm I'm self-taught, I suppose. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I do. I have my. I mean, my my uh, college education was. Uh, I mean, I went to school to be a journalist. Unfortunately, I, when I did so, it was around the turn of the century when all of a sudden newspapers died, and I found myself not wanting to. I like to eat, so that didn't work out for me. And the only reason I just you know wanted to be a journalist was because I like to write. So I was looking for a job that I could write. So that's that was mostly my background right there. I did, you know, I actually published a magazine for a little bit in the early 2000s. Again, right around the time of the dawning of the internet. So it didn't do as well as I would like, but it was a travel magazine. I, you know, we enjoyed traveling, so made a little southern travel magazine and had several issues out. That was kind of my background right there. So 
All right, let's get stuck into the interview because I'm dying to talk to James. I haven't uh, spoken to him live in uh, in a few years, actually. So, uh, and uh, James Hinchcliffe, ladies and gentlemen, we'll get to the interview. So on this edition, we are talking about shifting gears and no more perfect person to have on the show than a guy that's shifted a lot of gears, Mr. James Hinchcliffe. Hi, James. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing? Doing good, doing good, sir. Fantastic. We've known each other for too many years that we probably shouldn't count up. It's coming up on 20. I want you to know that. It's almost 20. It probably is. I was actually trying to think about it. It's like, when did we actually first, I couldn't remember if we, I ran across you when you were doing BMW or Mazda, and then obviously, you know, Atlantic. Yeah, I think I think it was probably pre-Atlantic, because I, I, I remember knowing, you know, it being a big deal that you were part of the team when I signed on. And so, so we, I don't remember exactly when it was, but yes, it would have been somewhere in 04 or 05. And then we worked together for the first time in 06. I must have had a good PR agent because uh, I wasn't that big, <laughs> big a deal. <laughs> but yeah, we worked on the same team and then uh, ran, uh, obviously James was driving and I was uh, race engineering uh, cars that were trying to beat the little bugger and he's hard to beat. So you've come a long way. It's been a minute. So seven wins in your IndyCar career, a 10-year IndyCar career? Six wins over 11, but close. <laughs> oh, man, I even made notes about that. That's, that's, <laughs> take the seven, take the seven. I gave you a better yeah, ratio. I know, I know, I know, I know. I should have, but somebody would have heard it and called me out. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but um, more, uh, most recently, you've made the transition over to the commentating booth. And uh, the first question is how is that looking down on all the things that you were doing before? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, it's, um, as mentioned, 11 years behind the wheel and, had a lot of fun, a lot of success to even get to IndyCar in general is, is, you know, so difficult. And to have a, a decade plus career there was, was just phenomenal, you know, and a bunch of different things sort of happened all at the same time. That was just, I think the stars aligning in a way, both professionally and personally, that kind of made me think it was time to take a step back. And amazingly, right at that moment, it's another, you know, add it to the list of things that kind of made it the perfect storm you know nbc had just renewed their contract with indycar for the broadcast rights and they came to me after you know hearing i was maybe going to step back and said hey what do you think about this i said let's go play and so that's kind of how it all came together and you know i was really comfortable with my decision when i made it but then you never really know how it's going to be until you get to that first race right you get to the track and it's always we always open the season in st petersburg florida and you know i'm down in st pete and uh Honestly, look, there were a lot of things I did miss about being behind the wheel and competing, but there was a whole lot more that I didn't. And so that's, I was standing there, I think by Saturday qualifying, you know, I was pretty content. I, I think I, it was less painful than I thought it was going to be. So I knew I, I had made the right call. And, and yeah, I mean, look, we, I get to go to all the IndyCar races and they pay me to talk about racing, which I would probably do for free. Don't tell them that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of just been my life anyway. Yeah. I went to uh, the guys in NASCAR. Obviously, I spent the last part of my racing uh, career in uh, working in NASCAR. And uh, Ross Chastain, uh, who I got to work with, texted me and said, hey, we're testing at Homestead. And at the time, we were in Key Largo. And he said, hey, can you, you come up? Say hi. And uh, they were doing a uh, – it was a fairly big manufacturer test there, so there's a lot of cars there. So we were on our way somewhere else. So Cheryl and I jumped in the bus and drove the bus up there and ended up pulling the bus right into the back of the uh, garage area paddock, as you and I would call it. And I got to, we got to wander about 
see everyone, chat with everybody, and then in the afternoon, get in the bus, drive out of there and leave while everyone's still slogging away, you know, and then thinking of the being there late that night, it was like, I'm good with it. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, so when I kind of made the decision, which was probably about late October, early November of 2021. So, you know, raced all season, you kind of made the decision to step back. And I told my wife, Becky, I said, look, so in 22, last year, I want it to be my yes year. Because for 20 years, you know, especially throughout the summer and the race season, but even during the off season, because you know that the off season just really means the not racing season. You're never really off. I, you know, I, I've had to sacrifice a lot. I've had to miss a lot of things and had to be sort of solely focused on one thing. So I said, this year, I'm doing everything. No matter what gets asked of me, personally or professionally, I'm just going to say yes to everything. We're going to do it all. All the things that I feel like I've not been able to do. I had the busiest year of my life in 2022 <laughs> yeah, yes. as a result of that. Probably overdid it a tiny bit, but no, what was so fascinating was, you know, I worked every IndyCar weekend. I worked a few IMSA weekends. I worked a few NASCAR weekends. I worked a few Formula One weekends, as well as traveled a bunch and did some other stuff. So I, I, I had a flat out schedule, but what was so fascinating was, you know, those IndyCars, you know, especially during the IndyCar season, right? Thursday to Sunday, I'm working, but Monday to Wednesday, I had nothing to do. And so like, even though I was traveling a ton and it was a lot of work, I just had so much more just downtime and time at home, you know, like, like physically just doing whatever it is I wanted to do or needed to do. And that was part of it. I was just, it was so rewarding and so, you know, refreshing compared to just like the literal seven day 24, you know, 365 grind that it is when you're behind the wheel. Yeah. It's easy to think of the drivers, you know, flying in, jumping in the cars and then, uh, going off for cocktails and girls and what have you, but it's such a different world. And uh, as I can attest to working on the engineering and management side of it, we are constantly pounding the drivers with information and preparation and then the physical training that you have to do, especially for open wheel cars. It was intense. It's just nonstop. And people, I think, look at motorsports and you turn on the TV, you see them go around, turn off the TV, and then they're there the next week. And you really don't put together how that whole, you know, situation moves. It's a circus, right? I mean, you go, you set up, you perform for three days, you tear it down, you move on to the next city. But in between there, it's, you say, the physical training, it's the engineering briefings, it's sponsored commitments, it's media obligations. It's just, it's nonstop. So it is, it is a very, very, you know, high intensity job all year round. So one of the things I've got to ask you is, uh, so you're sitting up in the booth and there's the dive bomb down the inside and he cleans out the guy. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that was bonehead. And they're two friends of yours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know where this is going. That have your phone number. How do you handle it? It's funny because the, the, the head of NBC Sports asked me the very same question before he hired me. And uh, yeah, look, you got to just, you got to call it as you see it. And that's, that's what it comes down to, you know. And, and I think I've got a decent enough relationship with pretty much all the drivers on the grid. But, you know, I've, I've been there for a long time. A lot of these guys are close personal friends. Some of them stood in my wedding. So it's, uh, you become a big family. And so you fight like family, right? Because if someone just dive bombed me on track, well, I'd have something to go say about it. So if I see someone dive bomb someone on track, I still can have something to say about it. And they might come up to me and be like, oh, well, this, that, and the other. And fine. And we can talk about it. We can fight about it. And then you hug it out and, and you move on. But I think so far in, in year one, nobody had to like approach me about any of the calls that I made. So I, 
think so far we've been pretty on the nose with it all. <laughs> you hear the yell across the, the paddock as you're walking through. Hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, Doug, you've got to get in here with a question because otherwise James and I are just going to be for hours. <laughs> yeah. So, J- James, I hear uh, that you did some Dancing with the Stars too. Is that correct? I did. Oh, wow. How, that is correct. How did that, uh, how'd that go with your exposure with, with working with NBC Sports and, and racing? And- well, I mean, it was, it was tough. It was an opportunity that came up. You know, at the time, IndyCar's TV rights were split between NBC and ABC, and Dancing with the Stars is an ABC property. And they're always looking for ways to sort of, you know, cross promote and things like that. And an IndyCar driver named Elio Castro Neves, four time Indy 500 winner, he had been on the show back in like late 2000s, I think. He actually won it. And so they, you know, they, they put a thing out. They asked IndyCar if they would ask me to, to participate. It took a little bit of back and forth before I agreed to do it. If I'm totally honest with you, it was not something I initially wanted to do. But the way the schedule worked out, there was only kind of one race that overlapped with the show season, so to speak. And so essentially, yeah, I moved out to LA and for three months, I danced eight to 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and, you know, tried to not look like an idiot on national television in front of 12 million people every week. Well, you finished second, so you didn't look like too much of an idiot. I remember, I remember watching them and I, you know, I hate dance. Well, I don't hate dancing. I like watching other people dance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I, I had the, I had the same feelings before the show. I think this was the extent of my dancing experience, you know, until I got there, like every yeah. other white guy from Canada, uh, especially for a dude that sits for a living, you know, but no, I had a great coach and, and I think athletes do well on that show because you're used to pushing yourself and you're, you're the competitive spirit really comes out. And, and for sure that was a, a huge part of it because I was not good at all when I showed up, but I just, I didn't want to lose. So you had no experience, like like you weren't like some secret Zero. dancing as a kid, nothing. Wow. Okay. I mean, I'd struggle to get through the Macarena. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's, there's always hope. I, I went to dance lessons once with my wife, and that was a disaster. Well, she was she was so embarrassed. She's like, I can't I can't be seen with you. So it was terrible. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> oh no. Cheryl gets a dance a year out of me, and that's the uh, that's my limit. I have a theory about guys and dancing so uh it's uh guys dance for one reason only and once you're married that reason's out the window so <laughs> yep 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 <laughs> now the dancing with the stars was on the heel of uh, it was the year after your indie accident right yeah that's right yeah it had a really bad uh crash at the, at the indianapolis motor speedway after a suspension failure in the middle of the corner threw me in the wall and i got essentially impaled by part of the suspension and Big injuries, hit an artery, nearly, you know, nearly bled to death, but was so, so lucky to get out of that alive. And then on top of it, even luckier to get away with it with really no lasting side effects. I made a, a full recovery. But yeah, it was, you know, about eight months later, I got asked to be on this show. And yeah, about a, about a year later, I was on, on, the, on the ballroom dance floor trying to tango my way to stardom. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a kind of cool story arc. And I think that's part of what you know, attracted the show to, to me and my story was just, you know, I was literally bedridden not that long before and uh, had to fight to get all my strength back and get back into a race car and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, try to try my hand at learning how to how to dance. It's an amazing story. And I mean, you're very humorous about your, your two buttholes these days. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so to be clear, literally a suspension piece impaled him through your thigh, right? And out your backside. Yeah, basically. As it went through, it hit the femoral artery in my left leg. I was shish kebabbed 
is basically the best way to think about it. And I was stuck in the car. I was bleeding to death. And, you know, the, the IndyCar series has always kind of been at the forefront of safety. And uh, one of the big parts of that, big components of that is the safety team that travels around the circuit with the drivers and the, and the series. And um, it's a group of, you know, EMS, CMTs, uh, firefighters that, you know, spend their weekends chasing us around the country and trying to, you know, save all these idiots that strap themselves into race cars, you know, 20 times a year. <laughs> so I'm curious that since Nick and I both kind of write action adventures, a lot of our characters get into situations, you know, similar to that where they're like life threatening and finding that mindset, like when it happens. And, and I know that my own son was in a pretty bad wreck and, and he won't ever tell me what his mindset was during it. But like when you, anytime you're in the, you know, going around the track, I'm sure that there's that danger that goes with it. Uh, what kind of mindset do you have to have to make sure you're focused on doing everything correctly that's as you get out? I say it's somewhat in jest, but it's also somewhat true. I think the mindset is ignorance. You know, every, every driver knows and understands the risks that inherently come with this sport. But as soon as you strap into the car, you have to have that, well, it's not going to happen to me mindset because you can't really afford the mental capacity, the bandwidth of having that in the back of your head. You need to be able to put the car on the line and, and risk it all to win because if you don't, somebody else will and you will get beat. And so I think that's just, you know, I, I again, I, I joke that drivers were sort of born without that self-preservation gene that most human beings have and all human beings should have. But for some reason, we don't. And I think that's a lot of what actually dictates a driver's career in terms of longevity is when that little voice in the back of your head starts saying, hey, this is kind of weird. Why are we doing this? I think that's when it's time to step back. And, you know, I was asked a lot after my accident, was I ever, you know, hesitant to get back into a race car to change me at all, whatever. And the, the short answer is no. From a professional standpoint, it didn't change me at all. You know, when I woke up in hospital, I had, you know, a tube down my throat. I'm on a back brace. I'm just out of surgery, you know, bright light shining in my face, bunch of concerned people standing around. I can only communicate with a pen and a piece of paper. And my third question was, when can I get back in the race car? And the doctors were very upset by that because they were like, hang on a minute. We've just spent six hours trying to save your life from what the race car did to you and you want to get back in it. It's like Y-E-S, you know? And so, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of comes with the territory. You know, I think it's just something inherent in, uh, in racing drivers. And for me, it was no different. You know, I was totally comfortable. I was, I was anxious. I was eager to get back into a race car despite what had happened. It's a great point. You could spend hours talking about it because the, the whole mindset behind it is interesting. And obviously, you know, I raced when I was younger and not nearly to the extent that you did, but we probably started at a similar young age. And I think that's a big part of it. When you start young, you start that programming, right? And your mind literally works in a different way behind the wheel of a race car. Because I don't know about you, but I mean, I could be just as much of a chicken, although I've jumped out of an airplane. I was pretty much a chicken when I did it. And certain other things, you're just like anybody else. But the fact that you're channeled down that one avenue of racing from when you're very young, I think one of the things, and, and James, I'll let you expand on this, but most people think when they watch a race car driver and they watch a stupid movie about race car driving, this guy's in there like, oh my God, and the heart rate's like pegged through the roof because of emotion. The heart rate's pegged because of the physical effort it takes to drive it. But actually, the mind is amazingly calm and processing, right? And I'm sure you've found the same thing. I've, I hit too many things in my time. And the whole time you're going into hit, you're thinking, ah, this one's going to hurt. 
and you kind of get ready for it, right? It's not like, mother! <laughs> it, it's a process, yeah? I think it really comes down to your ability to compartmentalize. And so, as you say, you start at a young age and you started go-karts and you sort of associate racing with that, you know, that one thing and you're able, you know, they teach you if you ever work with a, a mental coach or anything like that, emotion is your enemy. You really need to just pack that all away and be totally present in what's happening in the moment. The calmer you can be, the better decision making, you know, you've got, that's just physiology, biology, science. So you, yeah, you spend a lot of time in this one thing. I think you get, a, you associate being at the racetrack, being in a race car or, or whatever with that zone, that mode that you have to go to mentally. But like a, a great example is, you know, in the race car, obviously that's how I was and that's how I would be today if I step back in one. I'll go out on the road in my road car and, and I'm terrified, you know, and, and I'm looking at, I'm assessing every danger. I'm looking at what it would feel like if I hit that, if I come through this intersection and someone's coming by and T-bones me, what's that going to be like? If this guy slams on his brakes, do I have room to go somewhere else? I mean, the amount of defensive driving that I employ on the road is heads and tails more sort of conscious than what you do on the racetrack. And it's just funny, even though you're driving a, a vehicle on a road, it, it's a completely different mindset and, and, and you don't have that same sort of mental space as when you're when you're in the race car. Great thing about race cars is, uh, in theory, the other people around you kind of know what they're doing and on the road, not so much. That, and that's what, I, that's what I say to people. You know, on a racetrack, I'm surrounded by professionals who've dedicated their lives to this one thing. I'm in a car that's designed inherently to keep me safe with six seatbelts and helmets and fireproof materials. I'm at a racetrack that's been designed to keep the car safe, and I have a safety team in an ambulance 30 seconds away. I look at the, you know, the rental car I'm driving here, for example, at 60 miles an hour. If I were to hit a tree, I mean, it's game over. So there's just, there's so much more risk on the road. And then that's before you take into account any of the other wahoos that are out there texting or shaving or drunk, you know, and so it's, yeah, the road is, is a way scarier place and a way riskier <laughs> place than the racetrack. I can't imagine like race car drivers with their, te their phones texting as they're going would be insane, wouldn't it? So, uh, yeah. Couldn't do it. You know, it's funny and you, <laughs> you watch the in-car camera and all the stuff that the drivers are doing now. It's insanity. I mean, because the wheels are computers. So you had an, an immeasurable number of things that you could adjust on the wheel while driving. You almost need a, a computer, a minor in computer science to be an open wheel driver now with the way the technology is developed. And, and again, it really, yeah, it really just expands that, that mental capacity required to be good at it. You know, you can have a, an immense driving talent, but you really need a certain level of intelligence now to be able to understand what the car is doing, what tools you have at your disposal from inside the car, you know, how to implement those changes to affect the, the car the way you want, all while driving 200 miles an hour and not trying to hit anything or screw up. So it's, it's a huge challenge. So uh, let's move on to another subject that I uh, selfishly want to talk about, which is scuba diving, because you are a scuba diver. I am. When did you get certified? I got certified in probably around 2010, I want to say, down in Turks and Caicos. I went for the first time on a resort course when I was, I mean, I think 10 or 11. Uh, we did a family trip. Actually, it was to the Bahamas. And my dad, brother, sister, and I went, and I just immediately fell in love with it. I didn't get to do it again for quite some time. But then when I, when I got the chance, I, you know, I did it one or two more times, and I thought, okay, I've just got to go ahead and, and get certified. So went and got my open water, advanced open water, nitrox, all that stuff. That was always my kind of off-season getaway when I was a driver, was if I could just get a week by the water and in the water. That was kind of my, my recharge, my reset, because 
to me, it was, it was the complete, you know, juxtaposition of the rest of my life. It was slow. It was quiet. No one was telling you what to do, where to go. You're like the outsider looking in. And I just, I mean, I absolutely love it. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, for a few years, we were trying to get in sync to land in Turks and Caicos. And in the end, we gave up on you and just went there. <laughs> and you <Yeah>. reckon <laughs> we, we went with the people that you recommended down there, the dive up, and they were superb. We had a lovely week there diving with them. Yeah, Steph and Bill there, Aqua TCI. If you're ever in the area, they're uh, they're brilliant. And, and honestly, it's a, that's a great place to dive. There's so many awesome sites. I, I highly, highly recommend it for any any divers listening as a as a destination. Have you been diving in the Bahamas near where you are yet? I have. Yeah, we went uh, over New Year's. Uh, we did a bit of a trip, bounced around to a few islands, and uh, and did a dive. And uh, I was down here in June. Dove um, a blue hole that's not too far off of uh, off New Providence, which was which was my first one of those, which was kind of fun. I know you've probably done many of them in your career, but yeah, I'm slowly I'm slowly trying to catch up. Now I've got a little more free time, and hopefully, spending more time down here, I'll get a, the opportunity to get a bunch more dives in me. Well, at some point, we'll 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 hook up again and, and do some uh, maybe in the Keys or something if we're back that way, because the wreck diving in the Keys is. Oh my God. I got so into wreck diving there. I mean, I, I was kind of into it before and it was fun, but man, the, uh, the wrecks there, they got the Spiegel Grove, which is 520 feet long. So it's in that's like amazing. All the inside of that thing and the corridors and everything else. It's just, it's really cool. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I, I love wreck diving. I've, I've not, I've, I've not seen any that you can really go into. Like the ones I've seen, the inside is pretty much rotted out now. There's a, there's an old mail ship, an old Royal mail ship in the BBIs. I forget what it's called now, but I did that dive and it was so fascinating and some of the old planes and stuff that have gone down. But yeah, I've heard, I've heard the keys is quite a few wrecks. So I'd be, I'd be definitely down for that. It's worth doing. Cool. All right. So let's talk about books because we kind of write books and that's what we do. Yes. And, and you surprised me when you said you can read. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not a, not a common thing for race drivers. I know. <laughs> Normally they look at the, you give them the pages of the uh, pre-event, right? And they just look at the pictures. <laughs> right. Picture, graphs. They can read graphs and maybe some numbers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> track maps. But yeah, no, they don't really read all the, uh, all the copy. <laughs> so what do you like to read? Um, honestly, uh, you know, we were texting earlier, I think right now I'm, I'm on the sort of historical binge, you know, whether it's biographies or, you know, recounting historical events, things like that. Right now I'm in the middle of the biggest book about Elvis that I could find. And it really was just because I watched that movie that came out recently. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I just, I really, you know, I, I know a lot of the music, but I didn't know much of the story. And as you know, movies never tell a story as well as a book does. So I was literally sitting in my chair watching the movie and I thought, this is fascinating. So I went on Amazon and I found the highest rated book on Elvis. So Last Train to Memphis is the one I'm on right now. But Oh, it was a good book. Oh, you read it? Well, yeah, I'm in Memphis. I mean, everything we do around here is Elvis. So we get tired of Elvis. But I love Elvis, but, you know, he is everywhere. Yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, but then I just, before that, I just finished... The Wicked and the Vile, which is an Eric Larson book about uh, Churchill's first year in office um, as prime minister during the war. Super fascinating. So stuff like that uh, is kind of what I've been into the last few years. I try to read on airplanes. That's kind of my thing. I try to put my phone down. And it was a lot easier back before, you know, iPads had movies and the planes all had TVs and stuff. So when I was, you know, when we were working together in the mid 2000s, there's nothing to do on a plane, so I would read. And that's really where it started for me. I hated reading until I dropped out of school. And as soon as I could choose what I wanted to read and not be told what to read, all of a sudden I'm like, reading's awesome. Books are cool. 
and that's really where it started. So I, I think when I was younger, I, I read a lot of fiction and a lot of like the murder mystery stuff. The easy, basically anything you could buy at an airport, right? So a lot of like Dean Koontz novels and stuff like that. And then I kind of, I, I, I won't lie, I fell off the train a little bit when iPads became a thing and you could watch movies and TV shows on planes. But now I'm, I'm back to books. And, you know, I, as I said, I had a really busy 2022. I kept track. I was on 96 planes last year. Wow. And so uh, I, I, I managed to get through a few books, which is nice. Side note, now, Doug is probably sick of this, but uh, one of the, when, in 2019, when Cheryl and I first took off in the bus, changed our lives and everything, went touring around, one of the highlights was going to Graceland in Memphis. Really? Yeah, I was really interested. I've always been an Elvis fan. I grew up, it's one of those things I grew up, my mom and dad played Elvis in the house. So it's kind of, you know, one of those things that's kind of embedded in your brain. I've always been a sort of uh, quiet Elvis fan. Graceland is fun. I, I don't, if somebody's in town, I'm like, hey, let's go to Graceland. And we're like, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you live there, right. sure, yeah. it gets we'll, old. But. We'll see when you get back. <laughs> but, yeah. The movie was great, but it was pretty inaccurate about a lot of things. I always liked the book better than the movie, always. Yeah, I was just talking about that in an article I wrote about. I had to review Jaws, the book. Have you ever read the book of Jaws? I haven't read the book, no. Don't, yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that's the exception to the rule, huh? Yeah, it it is honestly, and that's in the article I put that. You know, you know how the movie's never as good as the book. Well, I've got one for you. So <laughs> we found it. We found yeah. it. The one thing about the book is it does. Uh, you know, it, it, Jaws has taken a lot of uh, flack over the years from uh, people who love the ocean and fish and sharks and everything. For sure, and, yeah. So, and I'm a shark lover. Right? I love seeing sharks in the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. it's great. And, um, you know, Jaws didn't do him any favors, <laughs> the movie. And in the book, that's the one thing it goes into a lot of, a lot more in depth about sharks and their characters. And, uh, and they touch on that way more, uh, which is more interesting. But apart from that, the rest of it's terrible. It's actually got a real awful part in it. That's just nothing to do with the shark or anything. It's just terrible. So how do we get on that? <laughs> that's me. We're, we're, we're golden retrievers on our show, by the way, we just fly yeah. off down the road. <laughs> so if anyone, uh, as we come to a close here, James, thanks again for coming on, man. And if anyone wants to listen to, to more of Hinch, which I uh, recommend highly you listen to more of him and probably less of us, he has a podcast that comes out. You do weekly, right? We do, yes. Yeah, it comes out Thursday mornings. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Because you got three guys that are all traveling around different parts of the world often. So uh, it's, it's a big commitment, but it's been fun. Yeah, yeah. So that's called Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. And his uh, partner in crime is Alexander Rossi, who's a, another IndyCar driver who is uh, a very, <laughs> let's see, he's the exuberant one and you're the dry, quiet one. Is that right? Or is it the other way around? Something wow. like that. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> Might be the other way around. Yeah, no, no. It's very Alexander the other way around. Super dry. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's a great guy. I actually worked with him a little bit uh, coaching-wise when he was a youngster, a wee little youngster, uh, when he was first starting in cars and uh, gone on to great stuff. So it's been brilliant having you on, James. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, sir. Before we go, I'd be remiss to not mention this, given the uh, given the company. Uh, my brother himself is uh, is an author and has uh, two novels published. YA, YA novels. The story is very far fetched. It's about a young Canadian kid who aspires to be a racing driver. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> Where did he pull that out of his ass? <laughs> I, I don't know. He's got a very creative mind, and so it's called Chasing Checkers. And there's like, there's two books in the series. So if anyone here is looking for it's funny because I just had uh, a friend of mine whose who's kid races go-karts and we were talking and she was saying how he was struggling with doing this book report in school 
And um, I said, well, what book is it? And she said, so now, was he allowed to choose the book? He goes, well, yeah, you can choose whatever book he wants. And so I said, well, have you heard of this one? Yeah. And so she looked up and she's like, this is the greatest thing ever. It's the first book he's ever actually wanted to read. And he, and he powered through it and it was great. So uh, That's awesome. there's hopefully a third one on the way. But yeah, so Chasing Checkers, you get on Amazon or whatever. If, uh, we'll if we'll include that in the show notes. Yeah, given, given the company, we should uh, we should at least throw that out there. Heck yeah. And if he has any questions about, um, you know, the book world and uh, all that kind of thing, then put him in touch with us. I met your brother actually in Toronto uh, and then probably again at the racetrack several times, but I do remember him. Yeah. So excellent. James, thank you. Of course, guys. Really appreciate you uh, having me on. And before we go, we have one more question for you about our... Oh, I almost forgot. You almost spin the wheel. You I almost <sighs> forgot. This is like the best thing that we do, James. So we have a stupid wheel we're going to spin. You can't really read it because this is also audio, but you do get to hear the wheel spin. And so we're going to ask you a question based on what it lands on. I love it. What is your current favorite song? I'm afraid we lost the connection with James. Uh, Tsunami, perhaps? Let's hope not. Anyway, he texted me his answer, and his answer was Hotel California by The Eagles, an absolute classic go to it anytime. So uh, thanks again, James, for being on the show and appreciate you following up uh, with an answer. Thanks for listening, everyone. Really enjoyed uh, getting a chance to talk with uh, James Hinchcliffe there today. Learned a lot about racing and things I didn't know. Hope everyone else enjoyed that. Subscribe to the show, folks. If you enjoyed what you had here, you can catch some more of it. Give us a review if you would. And uh, check out the show notes for links to our books, social media, plus anything we mentioned during the show. We'll put a link in there to James's podcast, Off Track, with uh, Hinch and Rossi, which is wildly entertaining. Plus, he mentioned his brother has a couple of books out there, and we'll make sure to uh, link to those. And uh, if you want to support the show, we're not doing a Patreon currently, uh, so the best way to support us is buy our books. Uh, if you like them, get them for yourself. If it's not your genre, then uh, Amazon has a great system of gifting eBooks to other people. So we'd really appreciate it. Great. And on our next week's, we'll be talking about uh, collaborating on books, uh, just something you and I have been doing. And um, I think our guest will be author AJ Stewart. So uh, look for new episodes every two weeks. And I'm actually uh, collaborating on a Tropical Authors book with uh, AJ and a couple others uh, right now. So it'd be exciting to talk to him. Until then, be cool to each other. And fair winds and following seas. You've been listening to the Two Authors Chat Show with Nicholas Harvey and Douglas Pratt. <laughs>